All right, I've got a handout for you. No pop quizzes. So I'm going to bring these back. And uh, you have a, you, did everybody do their homework assignment? You didn't have a homework assignment till now, so. All right, I want you to look back over Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And on the back of this at the bottom or at the top, write out two or three questions that come to mind when you read those verses. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, where we left off last week to where we're going tonight. All right, take about uh, two or three minutes and uh, write down a question that comes to mind. And then we will make sure that we don't answer those. All right, somebody tell me, not necessarily your question, because I'm going to give the time at the end after we do our discussion of things that you didn't get answered and there's something on there you want to know, we'll, we'll do that. But tell me something that you find interesting in that part, something that kind of kind of your interest spikes or something that you thought was interesting in reading that. Cliff? The description of Christ, okay. Cliff? Interesting description, right? Okay. We'll talk about it. Anything else that you find interesting? All right, let's talk then about what, what, what is the book we're studying? Revelation, right? What is it the revelation of? Jesus Christ, right? It is his revelation. It is of him. It is about him. It is from him. And so throughout the book, what we want to ask is, what does this teach us about Jesus? Now, we have a very easy passage to understand that here because this passage is about Jesus. It tells us about him. It gives us some descriptions of him. It helps us to get a glimpse of who he is. It is a vision that John recorded. Now, here's what I want us to remember for a moment. When it says that John had a vision, the vision that he had is the book. It's not just this piece about Jesus. Because he tells him to write down what he saw, and he wrote the book. And so... Sometimes we, we are very good at compartmentalizing things, of breaking things up and saying, well, this is this section, and then we study the next session. What I really don't want to happen is that while we go through the book of Revelation is for us to so get involved in the trees that we missed the forest. Now, usually they, the cliche is the other way around, right? But I, I want us to... Remember that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, and it is for the church. And so we have to ask, what are we supposed to learn here? Let's read it together. Chapter 1, verse 9, just for your information, tonight I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, just because I want to. And I get to make those kind of decisions as I'm up here. First... John, I mean, John, John chapter 1, I'm going to make the turn back. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write on the scroll that what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, 
Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace, his voice like the sound of cascading waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. Now, verse 20 is one of those verses I kind of wish every chapter in Revelation had. Because he says, oh, by the way, those seven stars you saw in my hand, this is what they mean. Would have caused a lot less confusion through the centuries if this would have been at the end of each one. The seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay? And so... What he does is he begins to recount why he wrote the book. Now, the first part of this, the prologue, verses 1 through 8, is just kind of the greeting. It's the dear churches. Okay? So once we move to chapter 1, verse 9, we have moved from the dear churches to the let me explain what I'm writing about. So this is the event that came before he wrote John chapter, I mean Revelation chapter 1. This is the event that caused him to write. And what I want you to see here, it was all predicated upon a vision he received in moments of worship. Right? What does he say? He says, when did he receive the revelation? What was he doing? On the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. Now, as Baptists, we like to just say he was on the Lord's day because we don't want to deal with the in the Spirit part. The, the point is that he was in the midst of a worship experience when suddenly the Lord brought a vision into his life. Now, there are a couple of points I want to make real quickly about that before we get to your sheet, okay? Some of you that are ready to start filling out blanks, we'll get there, okay? Where's John when he's having this worship experience? Patmos? Prison? You may know what prisoners on Patmos did. They worked in a rock quarry. Now, I, I, I know this isn't exactly right, but I like to think of that as harvesting rocks. Now, I am the first generation of my family that hasn't worked the fields. Now, my dad picked cotton. My dad got out of school to go pick cotton. My mom picked cotton. Now, my dad will tell you she didn't pick near the amount of cotton my dad picked. But I haven't been one of those that's picked. I mean, I haven't gone to the fields and picked. But I can't imagine anything harder than harvesting rock. How old was John? 85-ish. How many of you, some of you are... Yes, a long way from 85. How many of you would like for an 85th birthday present to be sent to an island prison where you had to work to harvest rocks? That didn't sound like a very good 
deal, does it? Yet what is he doing on this prison island? He's worshiping the Lord. For some reason this week, I just had this thought. How easy is it for us to get distracted from worship? I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm not naive enough to believe, and I think the Bible obviously teaches that worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. But let's just think about Sunday morning worship time. How easy is it for you to get distracted from worshiping the Lord on Sunday morning? I mean, maybe somebody says something to you on the way in that gets you a little fired up. Maybe the kids didn't follow your instructions exactly when getting ready that morning. Maybe you walk in and during the middle of a song, one of the instruments plays a note that's just a little off. Or maybe there's a song that they play that that just is not your taste. Or maybe the preacher says something that he could have just left that unsaid. Or maybe your, your cushion on your pew is a little harder than you'd like for it to be. Or heaven forbid somebody sat in your pew. The air conditioning is at 74 instead of 72, or it's at 68 instead of 72, and you're freezing. It's pretty easy to get distracted from worship, isn't it? And here's an 85-year-old man imprisoned on an island where he's working probably in a rock quarry, and on the Lord's Day, he's worshiping. Here's another thing that I notice. I think we forget that the vision came in a moment when all that John cared about was worshiping the Lord. It's interesting to me that oftentimes God will give me direction and peace and clarity and comfort in those moments when I'm not seeking clarity and peace and comfort and direction. I'm just seeking Him. John didn't say, Lord, I need a vision of what you're going to do at the end of time. He just wanted to see the Lord. He just wanted to worship Him. And what happened is, the Lord showed up and gave him more than he could have ever imagined or expected. Now, there are three things that I want us to talk about tonight. And I want to be real honest with you about this. I am generally have little difficulty outlining. I am not, I'm not saying that they're good. I'm just saying that I don't have a problem setting an outline. Uh, I think very linear, linearly. I think in a line. All right. So I think uh, I think A to B to C. In my mind, when I'm studying for for getting a sermon ready, I literally sometimes can see that uh, alphanumeric outline, the Roman numeral one, followed by the A, followed by the little one, followed by the little, I can see that developing in my mind. That's just how I think. I, I couldn't get my head around this one today. There's just so much here, and it it's not disconnected, but it's hard to just put in. Here's my fear. That's going to be true for the rest of this book because it's not a linear here it is kind of book. So I tell you that to say that we're going to talk through this, but I'm going to give you information that may or may not directly apply to that point at that moment. But it's still good information. All right? I looked at four or five uh, 
other sermons and commentaries to see what they did, and they were terrible outlines. So I'm just throwing my terrible outline in with theirs, okay? And the first thing that I want you to see, though, is when you get a vision from Jesus, when Jesus shows up, when he reveals something about himself, when he unveils a part of who he is, one of the things that's going to happen is is that you will have comfort in pain. That he will bring with him comfort in the midst of pain. Now, part of this comes from a, a belief inside of me that what John was doing is that John wasn't just overly excited about being on an island prison working at a rock quarry. And he was concerned for what he was hearing about the churches that were happening in Asia. And what he wanted more than anything was for God to do something about it. And so in the midst of his worship, he's crying out to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. But in his heart, he's saying, I need an answer. I'm hurting, Lord. And John is shown some things by the Lord. Now, it it happens here in the first part. It happens in his salutation, his greeting. He says, I, John. And then he gives them these two words. I am your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom and perseverance. The first thing, the reason that there is comfort and pain is because we are reminded when we see Jesus that we are not alone. John was saying, listen, I'm suffering with you. And he's going to tell him in a minute, I'm here because of my preaching of Christ. I'm here because of what I did, because of what I said, because of what I believe. And I want you to know that. Somebody said about the prisoners there, Pliny the Elder said this. Those prisoners were thrown together into any ship that could be found. And if the ship escaped the waves and the storms and reached the place, there was nothing there but rocks and inhospitable, rugged shore where they had to pass a life of hardship and misery. Now, it was the kind of place that you were punished before you went. It was a place of humbler criminals. It was a place where slave criminals went. It was in its worst form a terrible fate. It was like the death penalty in that you were sent there with the point of never coming back. It was preceded by scourging. You know what scourging is, right? It's what they did to Jesus before they put him on the cross. It was marked by perpetual fetters. What are fetters? Chains, right? Scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on the bare ground or in a dark prison, and work under the lash of a military overseers. That is what St. John was enduring. And he says to him, listen, I'm laboring with you. The Christians to whom he was writing were living in a world where Domitian had come up and had decided that if people didn't bow down to him, they would be charged with treason, beaten, tortured, killed. And he says, we're not in this alone. Here's something I've discovered in my life. I can go through almost anything if somebody's going through it with me. So I've been married 13 years. Some of you have been married much longer than that. The thing that I love about marriage is that no matter what circumstances life brings me, I have a partner walking with me through it. And in the biblical understanding of marriage, that means that we share one another's burdens and we're able to make it through together. What John says to them is, what Jesus is going to show him is, 
cheer up because not only are you standing with one another, but I'm standing with you. One commentator said that this this uh, tribulation, kingdom, perseverance is a pattern that comes from Jesus, is with Jesus. And in fact, it says in Jesus, you've had that. And the idea is in the same way that Jesus suffered before it was revealed who he was, we will suffer before it's revealed who we are. That's why I think the Bible puts such an emphasis on ministering to the orphans and the widows. Is because we need to walk with people through difficulty. That's why things like Sunday school classes are so important. Because we need to know that we're not alone. And John says, I am with you. I am on top of this. I'm with you. I'm not a lone ranger. Now, John had experienced a lot of loss. He had seen the Lord suffer. Nobody had a better seat to watching Jesus suffer than John. He had watched his brother be martyred or had heard of that. Paul and Peter were dead. He says, listen, I know what hardship is, but we're in it together. And then he reminds them that it's not just for any reason that they're suffering. They're suffering because of their attachment to Jesus. And he wants them to know not only are we not alone, but we have a purpose in life. And he tells them that we're together in this suffering, in this kingdom, and in this patience. He says there is great pressure, trouble, affliction, but they can't sidetrack our walk with the Lord. John, like Peter and Paul and the Lord, received his greatest revelation, climbed to the highest spiritual mountain during a time of extreme suffering and persecution. And in the midst of that, he reminds them, it's because we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. He says there is persecution, but there's also kingdom. And the kingdom is that we serve Christ, who is ruling over all. He is the one that is in control here. Even though Domitian wants you to believe that he is God, he is not. And we serve the one who is. Now, here's the interesting thing about those three words. Suffering, kingdom, perseverance. They are all one thought in the original language. In the Greek, they're all right there together. And it means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, cheer up because persecution is going to be a part of your life. Now, I didn't say persecution on the outline for this reason, because we don't know what that is. We don't have a clue what persecution is. I'm glad to live in a country where when a social organization sues a school system, for prayers in schools, people get outraged that somebody would have the gall to sue them because we ought to have stuff like that in our schools. I'm glad to be in a country where that's a question and not if you speak the name of Jesus, you're going in jail. We don't understand what John's talking about here. But we do understand pain. And we do understand that if we're living the Christian life, we are not going to have all that we can hope to have of the material things of this world, of the approval of this world, we're not. We are strangers in a strange land. But he wants them to remember they have a purpose and then lastly they have a future. 
The reason for mentioning the kingdom and Christ is to remind them that one day all this is going to be done and we will reign with the Lord. Now, the truth is, if you want to take an outline of the book, you could say that if he was writing an outline for the entire book, it could be, we are not alone, we have a purpose, and we have a future in Christ. In the midst of your persecution, don't freak out because you're not alone. And God's going to work through this, and he's going to bring it all together. And so that first little part is just that. He's saying, I'm with you, and we're together, and we're going to make it through. He tells them that part of the reason I'm here is because I'm doing exactly what God intended for me to do. I'm preaching the word. I'm giving my testimony. And in the midst of that, in the midst of being in prison, one day while I was praying, the Lord gave me this unbelievable vision of what's about to happen. Now, there's an interesting little part in there. It says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, a question was asked about the voice being behind. Um, The point there really is this, that he was so wrapped up in worship and praying and praising and worshiping the Lord that everything else around him was kind of a fog at the moment. Now, I don't know how to describe that other than if you have ever had a moment where you have been in intense worship with the Lord, the rest of the world just kind of fades away. And he says, the voice was like a trumpet. Now, in the New Testament days, if you wanted to get people's attention, you used a trumpet. Now, why would you use a trumpet? Because it's loud, right? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when Bill Lars plays the trumpet, we do not put a microphone on it. And I don't have anybody that comes up and says to me afterwards, you know, I saw him like he had his mouth up to it. I just didn't hear anything. In fact, if we, you were to come here on Sunday morning and everybody would be around talking, milling, you're talking about lunch that afternoon or what you had for supper last night or Tennessee's performance on the football field or Vanderbilt being 3-0 and for the first time in 482 years or whatever. If you're talking about all that, and Bill decided he was going to get at the back of the balcony where nobody was seeing him, and he started playing his trumpet loudly, everybody would stop. Like, what in the world's going on? If the preacher gets up and says, let's all calm down, you just go, oh, he'll be fine. If the trumpet blows, what happens? You... So the point is not that his voice sounded like a trumpet. The point is that the voice shook him from that moment and made him recognize something spectacular was about to happen. And it says that he turns around. The voice was saying, write on a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches. It's a commission. Get ready to write because I'm going to give you some information. Here's the second thing that happens when a vision of Jesus comes. Not only will it bring comfort and pain, but secondly, it will give you a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Verse 12, by the way, has this interesting little phrase. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Can you see a voice? Can you see a voice? Anybody ever seen a voice? I'm not talking about the voice. That's a TV show. I'm talking about a voice, right? No, you can't see a voice. The point is I turned to see who was talking, all right? That's just a kind of a metaphor there. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. What are the lampstands? Churches. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Here's an interesting little part, little nugget that's not part of, of the outline. Um, the lampstands there are probably a picture of the lampstand that was in the temple. There was only one major lampstand in the temple. The reason there are seven lampstands is the perfect number. The seven 
would represent the full people of God. It also would show that the word of the Lord had spread beyond the Jews and was now going to all nations. And that those lampstands mean that the temple of God is no longer a physical place. It is now what? Within us. It's the people of God. That the temple of God has moved from a physical location to being God's people. And so when it says the seven lampstands, there is more there than just, oh, he's just talking about seven churches. There's seven lampstands. It means that the temple of God has moved from a physical location to a place that is spreading continually throughout the world and that it is fulfilled in the people of God from all times as they live for the Lord. And so he sees those seven. And one like the Son of Man is walking around among them. One idea before we get to the descriptions here. The fact that he's walking among them also gives this essence of being close to them. That he's continually watching over. He's continually protecting. He's continually thinking about. He's continually with them. All right? And then he gives us this kind of description. By the way, when I was in college at Union, I took a J term. We had January terms. I took a J term on Revelation. Uh, my teacher was a guy named Paul Jackson who uh, was written part of our curriculum on Romans, the participants got or something. Allen's had Dr. Jackson at the Union Extension. Dr. Jackson, what he, what he did on the second day of winter term, there was snow on the ground. I had class from 9 to 12, and the winter term was the greatest thing in the history of college. Class from 9 to 12 and nothing until 9 o'clock the next morning. Not many people on campus are just very relaxed. He said, this is what I want you to do tonight. I want you to go home and draw Jesus as depicted in verses 12 through 16. A, I cannot draw. If he would have told me to take the Greek New Testament home and translate those verses, I would have gotten that done more quickly than drawing. All right. Now, some of you are artists. I am not. If I were to draw this today and Eli were to draw it today, you probably could not pick out whose was whose when we were done. All right. B, have you ever tried to visualize what's described here? I mean, he said he wanted it detailed like it says in Revelation. So you've got what? A long white robe. You've got a golden sash. You've got feet that are bronzed feet, burning eyes, white wool hair, two-edged sword. Where? He's holding it. He's carrying it. No, it's... Protruding. For a guy that doesn't know how to do perspective on drawings, that came out rather weird looking. All right? It's a strange picture, right? Now, the question people ask me is Did John actually see Jesus like he describes here? Or is John just kind of using metaphors? And I answer that with. That is a great question. Now, our job, though, is not to think, well, does Jesus really look like that? Our job is to say, well, what does it teach us? What does it mean for it? What does that all kind of describe? And what we see here is we are given a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. I want you to write down these three words where it says A, B, and C, okay? Three words because I'm going to go through kind of each one at a time. But I want you to get the overview there, all right? It shows Jesus in these passages or in these descriptions, as a priest, as a judge, and as a ruler. 
a priest, a judge, and a ruler. And you say, that's exactly what I thought when I read that, right? Here's the second thing that you have to to know about this passage. This passage, according to one uh, scholar that uh, I read today, is a conglomeration of pictures of the Son of Man as described in Daniel 3, 7, and 10. 3, 7, and 10. In fact, what this one scholar wrote and gave a very persuasive argument is that what the writer here, what John is seeing in Jesus, what John is being revealed to him by Jesus is that he is the Son of Man as revealed in Daniel. He has come and he is living and we need to recognize that he is him. Now, Daniel 3, 7, and 10, we're not going to go over there, but you can write that down and go read some of that later and see how it kind of fits. I'll give you some kind of things in here. But the idea in this passage is that Jesus' moral purity And those things that are a part of his life, the power that he has, serve as the basis to be able to speak judgment and to declare what will happen. Let's look at it a little bit. So I turned to see the voice. There was the Son of Man. He was dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the whole idea here is that in this vision of God, what we see is various descriptions that relate to Old Testament passages and images. First of all, when it says he is dressed in a white cloth with a gold sash, it would immediately think to their Jewish readers, he was dressed like a high priest. He is dressed as one who oversees our worship. He was clothed with a garment down to his feet. It's a perfect tense, which means it has happened and it is continuing to happen, and about the chest with a golden band. It was the dress of the priest in the Old Testament. It signifies Jesus as our high priest and points to his work of atonement and intercession on our behalf. It says, as the book of Hebrew talks about, that we have a high priest who is not unaware of our tribulation. He is a high priest that has gone before us, that is interceding for us. He is powerful enough to do that. Then it says, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow. So what's that teaching us about him? What's the significance of white hair? Wisdom. Yeah. My four o'clock crowd said, it means you're old. That's what they said. But in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days is described as the one with a white head. The Ancient of days there means one that has always existed, one who is and was and is to come. It means that in his wisdom he is profound. It means that there's a purity in his character, a dignity in his person, an authority as a judge because of his wisdom. There's an eternality in his presence as it talks about him as the Ancient of days in Daniel 7, 9. And there's an excellency in his wisdom. Why would burning eyes, what would that have to do with anything? Anybody want to guess? Yeah. Yeah. You gave the exact two points. Y'all two are writing commentaries for Revelation. Jack and Carol up here as a tag team said, it means that he has 
penetrating eyes. And Jack said that it means he sees all. Here's the thing. Yes. It means that he is all-knowing, that his eyes see all, and that what he sees, there, there is nothing that can be hidden. His eyes are penetrating. That when the gaze of the Lord falls upon you, there is nothing that you can hide from him. The Old Testament imagery of that is that. Have you ever? I mean, have you ever stood before somebody and you're you're just thinking, I hope they don't know what I'm thinking right now, or what's going on in my mind. And doesn't have to necessarily be mean or mean spirited or a major sin, but just I just hope they don't know what's going on. Maybe it's not even a conversation with them. It's just if they only knew what was happening in my life right now. When, when you come in contact with the risen Lord, that <laughs> he knows. Then it says, his feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace. A couple of things here that are kind of interesting. Bronze is one of the strongest things they had back then. Bronze that had been fired in a furnace were especially strong because they had been they had endured severe testing. Why is it significant that their feet are made of bronze? Yeah, it's it's the place where strength comes from. It's the place where stability comes from. It's a foundation. If um, I talk some about football, when when football players are running, if their legs come out from under them, they're gone. I get joked with a little bit here about my first ever softball game wearing the First Baptist Church Goodlettsville uniform. Because I hit a ball, and I, my preferred method of playing softball is singles. Like, I hit the ball, and I get a single, and then the next four guys behind me get a single. Because you have to run two bases. That's too much running. All right? And so you go space to base. I believe station to station. And so I was on first, and somebody hit one in a gap. And as I was rounding third, yet they were trying to send me home from third, my feet got tangled up. My feet came out from under me. And and when I came up, I had a white stripe down from head to toe. Okay? Because my feet weren't sturdy. The point here is that his feet were as strong as you could imagine. He is stable and sturdy. Um, here's another little interesting thing. The, the guy that I mentioned that talked about uh, Daniel 3, 7, and 10. Does anybody know what happened in Daniel 3? fiery furnace. And when they got down in the bottom of the fiery furnace, they weren't alone, were they? There was somebody there who looked like the Son of Man. He says to the people that are reading this, that know their Old Testament history, they immediately think like the one who walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that he walked with them in their time of biggest And in the midst of that, he is the one that protected them and kept them strong. Then it says his voice is like that of rushing waters. Anybody here, I asked this question before, anybody been to Niagara Falls? Anybody been to like a big waterfall? I'm not talking about like, you know, out walking at Moss Ride and one of the rocks got a spout coming out of it. 
you know, I'm talking about like a big waterfall, right? When there's a big waterfall, what does it sound like? Roars, right? Can you have a conversation right around a big waterfall? No, because it's just too loud. It says that his voice. Now, it doesn't mean that if Jesus starts talking, you're like, I can't, I can't, what? You know, too, it just means that there is authority in it and that it drowns out all else. And then there's this picture, two other things. In his right hand, he had seven stars. The idea there is that in, in, in those days, if you held something in your right hand, it wasn't getting out. That is a place of security. He is holding them. He is taking care of them. He is protecting them. And then it says this, And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. The idea here is not necessarily the Word of God like the Bible. Not, not necessarily that, although that can be thought of here. The idea is that whatever came from his mouth was able to divide, was able to split, was able to be right on when it came to judgment. So what comes from his mouth, the words that he is about to speak to John, you can trust that they are true and they're going to be penetrating. All right? By the way, that, that, the sword that's talked about here would have been the sword a Roman soldier would have carried around. And then it says that his face was shining like the sun at midday. It's brilliant. It's glory. It's majesty, awesomeness. The point of all that is even John getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus saw him as he is, awesome powerful, majestic, worthy of worship, worthy of service, worthy of all that we can give. And that leads us to the last thing. Anytime you get a vision of Jesus, it demands a response. Let me ask you a quick question about John. Did John know Jesus very well while he was on the earth? How do we know John knew Jesus well? There are few, yeah, he, he was an apostle, which means he was one of the what? I mean, first of all, he's a disciple, so he's one of the ones that follow. But more than a disciple, he was an apostle, which means he was one of the twelve. Okay, But he wasn't just one of the twelve. He was on the inner circle, right? He was one of the inner circle three. I mean, with Peter and James, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who went? Peter, James, and John. We uh, get this picture, but he wasn't just one of the disciples who was one of the apostles who was one of the inner three. You get this picture that if Jesus had to mark his best friend on a survey, the name John would have come out. Who was the one that stood at the foot of the cross the day he died? It was John. So I would say that John knew Jesus well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Jesus entrusted Mary him okay here's my point john had seen jesus do some pretty amazing things he had been on the mount transfiguration you know where jesus kind of changed what he looked like that's what transfiguration means and oh by the way there are a couple of guys that stood over there and talked with him who had been dead for several hundred years so he'd seen some amazing things what's john's response when he sees this glimpse of the glorified christ Falls on his face as if dead. Do you think he cared what the other prisoners might think of him? 
Do you think he worried about what they might say about him? Do you think that John thought from ah, Sure, I mean, I know, but I just I just keep it together. Whenever you see a vision of the Lord, it will make you come completely undone. Isaiah chapter 6, what happens? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. The train of his robe filled the garment. The people, are, the angels are crying back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I yelled out, Woe is me. Jesus walks on water, climbs back in the boat. What do they do? We're not worthy to be around you. They worship. John gets a glimpse of the vision of the glory of God. And he is completely undone. Here's the thing. John has a fourfold response or fourfold plant pattern that you see throughout Scripture. And it's this. The first thing is he catches a glimpse of God. Just a glimpse. Once that happens, he falls on his face. What's the significance in Scripture of somebody falling on their face? Why is that a significant thing? Sign of obedience, submission. There's this understanding that when you fall on your face, if you could go any lower, you would. Right? I mean, when you're on your face, on the ground, that is the lowest you can be. It's complete surrender. The pattern then follows this in Scripture. The supreme being, the heavenly figure, then takes time to comfort whoever comes in contact. Think about it in Isaiah. They take their live coal and they put it on his tongue. You think Jesus kind of gets the disciples. Let's get back going. Let's go. And with John, Jesus says, again, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I love this phrase. I am the living one. I was dead. But look, I'm alive forever now. I just love how Jesus kind of said, by the way, you remember I was dead, right? You were there. I was, but I'm not anymore. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week that said they drove by a church the other day, and the sign just said, God died. And they said, what do you think they meant? I said, I don't know. My hope is they ran out of letters and had to go back inside to get something to finish the sentence. It's my hope. That's not the end of the story. Um, he did. I mean, if you want to... If it, now, is it is that an, in, an incomplete sentence? Yes. Is it untrue? No. He died. But he ain't dead anymore. That's what Jesus said. I was dead. But not anymore. And then he says this. And I'll hold the keys of death and Hades. I'm in control of that. Don't be afraid. Why are you going to be afraid? Rejoice. There are good days coming. They can't kill you unless I let them. And even if they kill your body, they can't touch your soul because it's mine. Then he's, this, this is what happens. The fourth thing is he gives them some further instructions. Well, some of you missed those. I'll get them to you at the end. All right. He gives them further instructions. So he says, so get up. Write what you have seen, what is, 
and what will take place after this. And then he tells them this little thing at the end. The secret of the seven stars is those are the lampstand. Those are my churches. And the angels are there serving the churches. Here's the point of the whole passage. It's just to say, what I'm about to write came directly from the Lord. And he is a Lord that when you come in contact with him, if we had to stand in his presence on our own merit, it would be the most frightening thing you could ever imagine. Ever. But because of the grace and mercy that he has shown us, it is a good thing to be in the presence of our king. And he's going to take care of you. But what he says is true. So here we go, churches. And next week we're going to talk about how that impacts us. All right? All right, what questions do you have that I didn't answer? Yeah, those four. Demand a response. Here are the four. It's just the pattern that happens in Scripture. A prophet observes a vision. Secondly, they fall on their face. Third, they're strengthened by a heavenly being. And fourth, they receive further instruction. All right, anything else? Any questions you wrote that we didn't get to? Or Yeah. That's, that's just a phrase that for us, like a son of man, means not exactly the son of man. The way that it was written in the original language, it means I saw a figure that the only way I can describe him as is the son of man, the one that's described in Daniel. So I don't think John, if you read the original Greek, John doesn't intend for it to be somebody less than the Son of Man or subservient or under that. He's saying he he fits that description. Well, it just didn't look like, yeah, didn't look like Jesus. And, and there are some people that think what happened here is, like I mentioned earlier, what did he actually see? That, that what John saw was this figure that he couldn't describe. And so he said, the closest thing to your reference of knowledge to what he was like is the son of man described in Daniel. And so he pulls these pictures of what that looked like in Daniel. And then he adds, but he is about to speak judgment. And it's going to come like a sharp two-edged sword. And so it's not that he actually saw the fiery eyes and the burnished bronze feet. I'm saying, he may have, but it may have been that I can't describe what I just saw. But the closest thing to what I just saw is what happens in Daniel, which is also an easy book to understand, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking this week, and I, I may do this one week, but you could make a story of cliches and metaphors that you would understand perfectly that if you gave it to somebody 100 years ago or 200 years from now, they would never, they would never understand. But you immediately think, you know, if I... Uh, you know, I was thinking about, we got some guys in the church that like to ride motorcycles. And uh, if you just said something like, uh, one Friday afternoon, David Carpenter got fed up, jumped on his hog, and went screaming down the road. He didn't stop till his tummy started rumbling, and he stopped at the Golden Arches. Now, you know what I'm talking about, Right? What did he do? He got on his motorcycle and he rode because he was mad and he stopped at McDonald's. But if somebody a hundred years ago read that, like he jumped on his hog, what do you went screaming down the road? Why is he yelling at somebody? What are the golden arches? Is that some kind of seventh wonder of the world? I mean, but I mean, you knew exactly what I was talking about. 
So when Paul, when John is writing to these people, that's what I'm talking about. Some of the symbolism, they would have gone, oh, like Daniel. Oh, he's the son. This is the Messiah, the promised one. The judgment's coming from. They, you know, it wouldn't have been like we have to do to go back. I mean, if somebody was taking our culture 2,000 years from now, they would have to go back, and there would be somebody going, and in their day, there was this restaurant. And outside of the restaurant, it had this big M, which came to symbolize as the golden arches. They had this delicacy known as the Big Mac. Right? And so what he means there is they ate food. Oh, wow. Are you sure that's what they meant? I don't think that's what they meant. Yes. <laughs> I didn't see there. What do you mean? That's crystal like the place where you go eat at crystals or like that's crystal clear. That's right. All right. Well, it's, that's, again, it's not describing what the voice actually sounded like. What it's describing is the characteristics of what's happening. The trumpet voice means that it's getting my attention. The rushing waters was in an Old Testament picture of what judgment was coming. Let judgment roll like an ever-flowing stream, like rushing waters. Part of the reason for that was one of the most powerful things they knew was rushing water. They didn't have boats that could steam up, power up, motor through. If you got caught in rushing water, it was a, something you couldn't fight. I'm sure some of y'all have been in a river or a creek or whitewater rafting, and there's that momentary thought that that water is going to take, and there is nothing you can do about it. And so the sound of rushing waters coming from his mouth was like that that will sweep you away, and there's nothing you can do about it. No, no, no. In Daniel, rephrase that, Kathy. Oh. I'd have to look that up again. Yeah. Find that where that is and email me and I'll give you an answer. Because I just I don't want to speak without knowledge of what I'm talking about. Exactly. All right, here's your homework for next week. Read the first church. It's only very short. And I'm going to give you a little homework for from remaining from this week. Since none of you ask, I'll let you find the answer. Tell me who the angel of the church is. At the end of this verse, it talks about the stars that he holds in his hand are the angels of the church. Well, you can let me know next week, Cliff. If you got a study Bible, look at it, figure it out. Don't don't spend 10 hours looking at it, but unless you just like that kind of stuff. You can probably, if you've got a computer, you can Google who is who are the angels in Revelation chapter one. That's what you got. That's what I want to know. Yeah, see, there's you know there's seven lampstands. He holds seven stars in his hands, and then he says, "What about the seven stars in verse 20? It says the seven stars are the are the seven angels are the angels of the seven churches. That's a good question, Jack. Sounds like a good question to think about next week. Some of you have been out of school long enough, you don't remember what homework is. That means work that you do at home, all right? All right, we're done.